0: So as we continue to read through the entire Bible together, this last week we were in 2 Corinthians and once again, there, there are a hundred different lessons, you know, in this book. And I want to point a few things out to you. But but hopefully you're seeing these things. Like when you're alone reading the Word of God, I, I hope that you're seeing a lot of these lessons. Like did you, did you catch in 2 Corinthians 1, and, and this continues throughout the whole book, how much Paul talks about suffering. You, you, you know, we live in a time, you know, as a pastor, I hear so many people question the existence of God or, or question if God is watching because they're suffering so much. And I get it, man. In our pain, sometimes you're like, gosh, this isn't right. This isn't right. And yet when you read the Apostle Paul and what he writes about his own life, it should be a comfort to you because you realize, okay, I'm not the only one suffering here. This seems like the norm. And so Paul, Paul addresses this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. He's saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul's saying you've got to understand our God. You've got to understand what Jesus went through on this earth. And and he talks about us sharing in his sufferings. We share, verse 5, not just a little bit. He goes, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. And uh, he continues in verse 8, he tells them, I I don't want you to be uh, unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Okay, so if you're listening to this right now and And maybe it has been a crazy week for you. Maybe it's been a painful week for you. Just understand you're in great company. Don't question God. In fact, sometimes we should really question ourselves when life is getting so easy. And there's no persecution. There's no difficulty. It's, well, are we out sharing the gospel? Are we out really making a difference? Um, Because you look at Paul's life and he says, man, I... I despaired of life itself. I I felt like I was, you know, I just received the sentence of death. But in all of that, he's not complaining. He's not questioning the existence of God. He realizes this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Powerful. When's the last time you went through a trial so difficult and in the midst of it you were able to see, you know what, this is so that I don't rely on myself. And, and it's amazing when you look at the suffering that that Paul goes through. You, you see later on in uh, uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 23 where he says uh, you know are they servants of Christ I'm a better one I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death five times I received in the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned three days times I was shipwrecked Uh, A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, Often without food, in cold, and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Okay. Listen to that description. Look at the life of Paul. Everything he went through. And, and, and beyond that, he goes, it's, it's not just all this exterior and everyone beating me countless times. Like, I don't even remember how many times I was beat up. He remembers how many times he got the 40 lashes minus one, meaning they took me to the brink of death. And it's like, oh, one more hit would kill me. It's like, just torture him to that point. He remembers that. He, he remembers being shipwrecked. He remembers, you know, uh, being stoned. Uh, he remembers like uh, three times I was... But he goes, I was beaten. I don't even know how many times. I just can't count. He goes, and beyond that, he goes, in my heart, he goes, I feel this pain, this anxiety for all the churches. It's like, oh, then I look at what's going on in the churches, what's going on in Corinth. And he goes, man, this hurts me. So Paul is a world of hurt. Not only that, but then in chapter 12, he says that God gave him, he says this this thorn was given to me in the flesh, verse 7, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So, listen. Listen. I don't think anyone listening to this has, uh, has experienced, gosh, one one-hundredth of what Paul had to go through. The suffering, the pain, and that's not belittling what we go through. I'm just saying, look at the physical torture. Look at the mental anguish, the emotional pain he had for the church. And beyond that, even this messenger from Satan, which no one is absolutely sure what he's talking about. But Paul, amidst all of that, is is asking God, please at least take away this messenger from Satan. Whatever that is, please take that away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so remember, Paul who went through all of that, also says in, in chapter 4, verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's just sharing with this church. Hey, for those of you who are suffering, this is not a weird thing. Let me tell you, this is life. This is what it means to follow him. You want me to run through my life here? Here's what I've gone through. He goes, but despite all of that, he goes, we don't lose heart. He goes, even if our outer self is wasting away, you feel like you're falling apart. That inner person in you can be and should be renewed day by day because he says this light and momentary affliction. Okay, as I was reading that description of everything Paul went through, were you thinking in your mind, ah, that's no big deal. We're thinking, ah, that's nothing compared to what I've gone through. No, you, you don't think of that as light and momentary. You look at that list and go, how did anyone survive it? And then Paul, who actually went through it, says, our light and momentary affliction. Why? Because he says it's preparing an eternal weight of glory that, that, that is beyond all comparison. He goes, what I'm getting for this <laughs> he goes, it doesn't even compare. So, everything I just listed is no big deal compared to the weight of this glory. See, it's like we were talking about the hope of, of glory back when we were studying Romans, it's like Paul, Paul saw what was ahead. And he goes, man, any type of suffering, it's not a big deal compared to what I'm receiving compared to what I'm going to receive one day. And he says, So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You guys, these are the verses we need to live by. Because we're going to focus on the things of the earth and everything's going to have this gravitational pull to make us think about what happened today and what just happened yesterday and what happened, you know, during that hour and what that person said in those two minutes. And Paul's saying, take your eyes off of that. It's light. It's momentary. It's not going to last. Think about this glory. Think about that the things that are coming. He goes, that's why we don't look to the things that we can see. Everything you can see right now is temporary. And Paul says, I keep my mind, my eyes on this eternal world. This world that I'm really a part of. This kingdom, this invisible kingdom that I'm part of. See, this invisible kingdom, that's the stuff that's going to last. The things of God. And there's going to be this eternal weight of glory. And he just kept staring at that. Staring at that to where these other things were really not a big deal. And I hope that as you were reading through 1 Corinthians, when you saw these passages, I hope they encouraged you. I hope you thought to yourself, You know what? If Paul could go through that, then what I'm going through is extremely light extremely temporary and yes his grace is sufficient for me man so much in this book real quickly you know chapters eight and nine when he talks about uh, the churches in macedonia and their giving spirit i just want you to catch a couple of things hopefully you saw it in second corinthians eight when he says we want you to know brothers about the grace of god that has been given among the churches of Macedonia." For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay, there's just a ton there. Okay, First, Paul is bragging about the Macedonian churches, but he's not really bragging about them because he goes, what do you say? I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He says, look, God just poured out his grace. He just gave an amazing amount of grace to these people. Now, usually, you know, in our day and age, when we hear that, we think, oh, what did God give them? You know, did He make them all healthy? Did He make them all wealthy? Did He, you know, give them a safe community to live in? It's like, no. He goes, I want you to know about the grace of God. Verse two, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. With a, in a wealth of generosity. <laughs> that is a mouthful. Okay, what was the grace of God in their lives? That while they were in extreme affliction, they had this abundance of joy. And their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Okay, how in the world does that make sense? Their extreme, listen to these words, their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Okay, we, we could think, I am filthy rich, God bless me, I'm filthy rich to where I can give to other people. And that's not what he's saying, because no, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And he says, these people, they gave according to their means and beyond their means, in fact, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Just think about their giving. And Paul's saying, look, this is the way we should be giving. He says, that's, that's Jesus. In, in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he's saying, look, this is the example of Jesus. He let it go. He, he, he let go of his riches. He became poor, and through his poverty we became rich. And that's what Paul's saying. Look at the Macedonian churches. You see the grace in Jesus? Now you see the grace in the Macedonian church. And then in chapter 9, he continues talking about them. In verse 6, he says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work so so what he's saying he goes here's my point the point is this you don't have to give he goes, you, you don't have to give anything. You know, you just, okay, give a couple bucks here or there. He goes, but just let me let me tell you, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. See, see, the Macedonians understood this. He goes, so if you don't want to give, like, like I remember at my church, I always had this saying, if you don't want to give, like, don't give. Like, that's not, uh, I, I'm not going to tell you or make you feel guilty. Um... And I'm not even going to tell you that it's wrong. I am going to tell you that it's stupid. (laughs) I mean, it's just, you're crazy. If you're just going to give a little bit, well, you know what? You're going to reap sparingly. And he goes, goes, I don't want anyone giving under compulsion. He goes, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And that was the Macedonians. They're begging, please, please, please let me give. Whereas so often in our church, it's like, it's like please, please, please give, um, begging people who are reluctant. He goes, man, the Macedonians—they weren't that way. They were—they were begging me. They were suffering, and yet they had total joy. They're in extreme poverty, yet it overflowed in generosity. He goes, but all of that is for one reason: the grace of God. God, make me like Jesus. Make me a giver like him. Show me your grace so that I can give like that. So this isn't about the Macedonians, and it's not about big givers here and there. It's about the grace of God, and it's so awesome when he puts that heart in you, the heart of Christ where you love giving and you're looking for opportunities to give. But but, but the last thing, and I, I just want to focus on this as, as we close, in 2 Corinthians 7 Um Paul talks about his first letter and he says some really interesting things because the people were bummed out about his first letter. It made them sad because, remember, he confronted the immorality, you know, the jealousy, the fighting, the, the, the you know, you're suing each other, you're getting drunk, you're, you're saying Jesus is a curse, you don't believe in the resurrection, I mean, on and on and on. And, um, and some of them wept over it. It's like, wow. Look at what Paul is saying to us. So in chapter 7, verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death so paul says when you read my letter it made you sad and he goes yeah i'm always sad when you're sad but there's this other part of me that's like i'm not sad that it made you grieve because it was a godly grieving and he says and this is how you can tell it was a godly grieving because it led to repentance it didn't just bum you out get you lit you know laying there sorrowful feeling sick to your stomach he goes that's worldly sorrow that leads to death but what it did was it led you to repentance which leads to life so yes i pointed out your sin it made you sad and you repented And he goes, so I'm not bummed that I made you sad because you changed. But there's a worldly sorrow where you get sad over and over again, but nothing changes. And you guys, I hope as you're reading the word of God daily, That as you read things and and they don't sit well with you because you know your life is not in accord with it. That's okay. That's good. That's good. We all go through that. But the response, is the the response repentance? Is it a godly sorrow? Godly sorrow leads to life. Man, I, I got to tell you, even, even last week, when we were reading through 1 Corinthians, man, there were parts that were so convicting to me. Man, uh, like, for example, uh, chapters 12 through 13 last week, I read them, and I immediately had to email the elders of the church and go, you guys, I, I need some help with this. Like, I can't live with this. I mean, on the one hand, I'm bummed out because I see how i've been unfaithful to this but on the flip side i'm excited to change i'm excited to experience all of this i mean i'm looking at some of these supernatural gifts and i'm telling them you know i haven't been fair to some of these passages you know i grew up very 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 conservative and i'm looking at some of these passages that were explained away earlier in my life and i'm going uh i can't buy that anymore I mean, when he's talking about prophecy, prophesying, in, in chapter 14, verse 34, it says, If all prophesy, and an unbeliever, outsider, enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I told them, man, I read that and I go, I want to experience that. But I've never even really been open to that. Help me. We got to get out of this. I feel terrible. I feel terrible about the the way the whole church is supposed to um, come with something. But the next verse is, what then, brothers, when you come together, when you come together, each one has a hymn. A lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Because when you come together, man, everyone come with something because you're supposed to use it to build up the body, and he talks about the order and everything else, and I'm all for that. But but, but my point was, when you look at the whole passage, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that whole section concerning spiritual gifts, he's saying in, in verse 7, he goes, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he goes, look, you know, everyone, every single person in the church has been given something. And so I told the elders, of course, I believe this. Of course, I've always taught it. But but have we really looked at people this way? Like, do I look at some of these people that come to our gatherings that I know are believers? And, and yet... Don't we sometimes look at them like the world looks at them and say, well, he's not that bright. He's not that gifted. He's not that good of, an, uh, you know, of a leader. Um, she, she's not that uh, you know, talented. She doesn't sing well. He doesn't play well. This, 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 this. They don't have that much money. It, like, we, we often do like, value certain gifts, and others, we don't look at them. As empowered by the Holy Spirit and necessary to the body, I mean that's the whole point. He says when you you know the foot can't say well because I'm not a hand, I you know I don't belong to the body. And he says, look, you you can't say to other parts of the body, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. And I said to the elders, don't we we would never say that to someone, but don't we show it by our actions? That that. We don't really need them. I mean, if that person left the church, it's not really going to hurt us. Or if that person left the church, it's not really going to hurt us. Here's three people, and if they exercise their gifts, it's going to be fine. But that's not the church that Christ wanted. And I just told them, I go, man, I am grieved about this. Because I've let people go, and I haven't looked at everyone as indispensable. Um, I, I have valued certain gifts more than others and, and I, I told them, we need to go to some of the members in our church, look them in the eye and say, look, we need you. First of all, we need you to love. I mean, you, first of all, you've got to believe that there's a gift in you. And, and, and as you look at us as a church, you need to love us so deeply. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, you have so much love for us, that you should be on your knees during the week saying, God, I love this body. I love them and I don't have much to offer in the flesh. So God, but you tell me that you've given me some supernatural spiritual manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Get on your knees and beg God to show you what that is, to give you that power so that you can bless us. And to look at every member in the church and saying, I need you to use that gift. But first of all, we as leaders need to believe that everyone in the church has this gift. Because if we don't believe it, how do we convince them And wouldn't it be awesome if everyone in the church body was on their knees during the week saying, God, I love these people and I know you have given me not just a natural talent, but a spiritual gift. A manifestation of the Holy Spirit himself. And somehow when I exercise that gift, it's supposed to build the body. So please, God, show me what it is. And I'm going to serve and I'm going to love. And God, I want to see you work alongside of me. Because the thing I've said to the elders, based upon 1 Corinthians, I mean, wouldn't God choose the people that we wouldn't normally choose with worldly eyes? And wouldn't God choose them to have the most amazing gift and bless the body? Could it be that we've been completely missing it and looking for talented people just like the world does, rather than looking at those who are faithful, who maybe outwardly don't seem like they have a lot of of natural human ability, and saying, no, God is probably going to bless them in a supernatural way to be a blessing to the church. And so it was just a time of repentance and um, saying, hey, let's, let's start looking at everyone in the body this way. Let's start having conversations and it's leading to life and repentance. And, and so even those of you who are listening, man, I've just got to ask you, are you confident in God's word? Don't doubt God's word. He gave you something. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he has given you a gift. And it's not so you can just sit at home by yourself and uh, and believe that you're a spiritual person because you don't need the church. No, that's ungodly. That's wicked. He gave you a gift for the common good, for the the church. You should be on your knees, not not out, uh, you know, complaining about why this church isn't this or isn't that. You should be on your knees saying, God, I love these people. Please, please show me the spiritual gift. Show it to the leaders of the church. Help me to go out there and just exercise it with whoever I can. But don't doubt the Word of God. If people in the world have told you you're not that intelligent, you're not that athletic, you're not that attractive, you're not that wealthy, you're not that successful, it's like just forget all of that and remember the promises of God's Word. He says, I'm going to choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I'm going to choose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. Trust in God's Word. Repent. This will lead to life. Use your gift for the body of Christ.